To learn more about The Church at West Gantt, visit us at www.thechurchatwg.com or visit our Facebook page, and we would love to connect with you. Have a great day. All right. I think all of our kids are already upstairs, so I'm going to skip the kids' dismissal. They are already up there, ready to go. Uh, But I need some help this morning from a few people that I did not pre-warn about this. Um, And so if I call your name, I hope you're just willing to help me. Um, Terry, will you help me out this morning? Come on up here. David Sutherland, will you come down and help me out? Hope, will you give me a hand? Uh, Let's see, Duncan, where'd you go? Don't leave, I need you. Uh, Jeremy, I need you as well. Yep, come on up. Uh, And here's what I need you guys to do. Uh, I need one more. Let's see, hold on. Curtis, why don't you come join me, bud? Uh, Here's what I need y'all to do. I need you to get in line uh, from tallest to shortest, with our tallest being over here and our shortest hope, that's you, being over here, all right? In case you just didn't know that that was coming, all right? Tallest to shortest. That's pretty even. That's pretty good. Got some pretty good gaps in there. This morning, I want to talk to you about the gap between us and God. I want to talk to you about perspective and how understanding the gap between us and God allows us to see his grace more clearly. Uh, We're going to be talking about the fall. We've been in a series uh, for a few weeks now uh, about God's story as we've been walking through from Genesis to Revelation, the idea of God's story from start to finish. We spent a few weeks on creation, uh, and this morning we are transitioning out of creation into the idea of the fall, this moment where God's beautiful creation took a fall. We stepped down. We messed it up, all right? And so I want to talk about the gap that was created in that. So this morning, I have one, two, three, four, five, six. I have six people up here at the front of this room. Now, Hope, look up to your father, and I did use the term look up, all right? So look up to your father. Um, Does it seem like he's that much taller than you? Maybe a little bit, right? You're, you're pretty short. You, maybe I need to stand in between you because Curtis is taller than me. All right, here, hold on. Is that better? All right, do, I, do you feel like I'm a little bit taller but not like insane, right? Okay, and if I look to Curtis, I would go, I got to raise my eyes a little bit. But Curtis isn't that much taller than me. Curtis, if you were to look at my brother-in-law, Jeremy, does he feel that much taller than you? No, not really, right? Like shiny head, big beard, but not that much taller. All right, Jeremy, if you were to look to Duncan, does Duncan feel that much taller? Honestly, I I would have, in my mind, y'all were reversed, all right? I thought you were taller than Duncan, but that's there. That's right. That's right. All right, so Duncan's a little taller than Jeremy. Duncan, if you look to Terry Campbell, uh, does he seem that much taller than you? Not a ton, a couple inches maybe, but not too bad. Terry, how do you feel about our good friend David Sutherland? You got to look up a little, which is rare for you, right? Like you don't have to look up to very many people. David is one of them. All right, now here's what I want to do. Each of these people have admitted to the fact that the person standing to their right, there's a little gap, but it's not much. It's not that noticeable from person to person. But I want you to see what happens when I take the four people out of the middle. So Curtis through Terry, y'all can go sit down. David and Hope step to the middle. You see the gap now? You you see how much difference, sorry Hope. (laughs) You You see how much difference there is now? 
a little bit of perspective can go a whole long way. When we understand what the difference is, not between Hope's height and David's height, but when we truly understand the gap between us and God, we get a much greater appreciation for how holy God really is. And so we gotta see that this morning because what we like to do in our flesh is we like to look to the guy next to us and go, I'm a little better than him. I'm a little bit better than, I, I got my stuff together a little more than they do, or even maybe they've got their stuff a little more together than I do, but, but we're pretty close and we like to play the comparison game. We like to play the, hey, I could keep up with them in their spiritual walk game. But the truth is, it's not us being compared to the person next to us that matters. It's the standard of us versus God's holiness that we've gotta look at. And David this morning, God bless him, represents God's holiness. There's a big gap here, guys. And we've gotta understand what that looks like. Thank you, Hope and David. Y'all can go sit down. Thank you, Hope, for being a, a trooper and allowing me to comment on your height. Appreciate that. If you've got a Bible this morning, I want you to open it up to Genesis chapter one. My apologies, Genesis chapter two. My apologies, Genesis chapter two. And we're gonna look this morning at the gap. We're gonna see the difference between our righteousness and God's holiness, and we're gonna see how big this gap really is because I need you to understand this morning that we don't come anywhere close to God's standards. And because of that gap, two things need to happen. I'm gonna go ahead and give you the end of my sermon at the beginning. Two things need to happen. Number one, we need to give God the glory for who he is. Remember, at the beginning of this sermon series, we said, the story is not about us, it's about God and his glory. So this morning, we're gonna see that. We're gonna, our response should be, man, how great and mighty God is, how holy he is compared to me. We've gotta recognize that. And the second thing that we've got to recognize is the beauty of the gospel. We've got to recognize that because of that gap, man, how amazing it is that God chose to close that gap for us. But if we walk into this with a perspective that, ah, the gap wasn't that bad, then God's holiness is greatly diminished. If we walk into this thing thinking, oh, it's, it's not, the, the fall wasn't that big of a deal, if it wasn't that harmful to us, then what we've done is we've taken away the beauty of the gospel by doing that. And so this morning, I hope that you'll find with me a new perspective today on the glory of God. Look with me, Genesis chapter two, we're gonna pick up in verse five. Genesis chapter two, we're gonna cover about a chapter and a half of scripture today, so get ready, here we go. Genesis chapter two, verse five. It says, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust, or out of the dust, from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Listen to this verse here. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, 
and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as well. Verse 10, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. There it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Hivala and where there is gold and the gold, uh, excuse me, and the gold of that land is good. Uh, Bedlam and, and onyx stone are there, and the name of the second river is Gihon, and uh, it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush, and the name of that river, the third river, is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, for the fourth river is the river Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. We're going to pause there. We're going to cover a little more in a moment. We're going to pause right there. Let's pray together over the reading of God's word. God, we thank you for fresh perspective this morning. We thank you that you're going to show us and teach us about your holiness today, God, and I pray that you are preparing our hearts right now, Father, for what we're going to see through your word. I pray that you are already using just the reading of it, God, before I explain a single thing, before we dive deep into its words. Your word is powerful in and of itself and can make the change before I say a word. And so, God, I just pray that you would use your word in that way in us today. Father, would you show us the gap between us and you? Would you teach us what it looks like to recognize and to praise your glory? And, Father, to, to understand the depths of your love for us through the gospel. Father, we praise you for all that you've done and we love you for who you are. It's in your name that we pray, amen. I wanna cover the fall of man. We didn't even get to the fall yet in what we read, but but I wanna cover the fall of man kinda in three scenes, three things that are kinda happening throughout the course of this story. Scene one is really the tail end of creation. And so uh, if we were to back up to Genesis one, we would see the story of creation, the seven days, uh, six days where God spoke and one day where he rested. We would see that played out. We've talked about that story for about three weeks now as we've gone through that. And then what we find in Genesis chapter two is that we zoom into the story of the creation of man and woman. Uh, We zoom into the creation of of mankind and and God's love for them and how he placed and purposed them. We talked about that last week a little bit. Uh, But what we're going to find this week is that as God created uh, these last few pieces of the garden, there are some important pieces we've got to pay attention to that play into the idea of the fall. So let's talk about the creation aspect of this, the first scene, the idea of creation. And what I want you to focus on out of this portion of the creation story are the two trees that we find listed in chapter 2, verse 9. It says, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up uh, every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And then it specifically names two trees. It says, The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. Some of your translations might say in the middle of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I spent a lot of time over the last few weeks as we've been preparing for this sermon series studying up on the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And there were some things that that I didn't even know prior to this that I've really been kind of mulling over and thinking through and things that I maybe didn't even pick up on in the, the many years that I've been studying the creation story. But here's what I love about this depiction that we get in Genesis 2 about the garden. 
It's this idea that God has already breathed out all of this stuff. He's already created man and woman, and then he's got these trees that he brings up, and he gives them to man and woman to be able to eat, and then he places two trees that are of great importance into the lives of Adam and Eve, and here's where these two trees come in. He first of all gives them the tree of life. Now, you'll notice in this passage that there is no restriction given to their consumption of the tree of life. There is, however, a second tree that he gives, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and to that one is the one that we get the command, don't eat from this tree, otherwise you will surely die. So what we need to understand is that God was providing life to Adam and Eve and life eternal through this living tree, this tree of life. And, but he also gave them an option to be obedient or to follow through by giving them another tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and he gave them the freedom to choose. You follow me, you act in obedience, you live a life that honors me, and as long as you do that, you have access to the tree of life. You have life eternal. But when you stop living in obedience to me or you begin to sin, you take from this tree, all of a sudden your access to the tree of life is gonna be cut off, you will surely die. I did a study into this idea of surely die, and what we find in that is that it's, it's not, uh, in English we translate it that way, but in the original Hebrew, it's the same verb repeated twice. So in other words, it would read this way, if you eat from the knowledge, or the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will die, die. It's not surely die, it's die, die. It's an emphasis on the word that it's like, there's no question about this. I need you to understand that this tree, if you take from its fruit, it will cause your death. No questions asked. There is no confusion here. There's no gray areas. There's no nothing. It is black and white. You have access to life through obedience to me. You have access to life as long as you listen to the one command that I've given you. But if you rebel against me, if you stop following me in that, your access to life is restricted. You will surely die. You will die, die. This is important. This is huge. Because it's the only command that is given to Adam and Eve that comes with a consequence to it. We'd already read a couple weeks ago, or last week rather, we, we read about purposes that God had given to Adam and Eve. Hey, you need to be fruitful and multiply. You need to fill the earth, right? Uh, you, need to, you need to subdue the earth. You need to have uh, this, this leadership ability over the, the creation that I've given you. You need to reflect my glory to people around you by obeying my commands, uh, following my patterns through things like the observance of the, of the Sabbath and many other pieces, but reflect my glory. But none of those commands that God gave to Adam and Eve came with a consequence. This is the first one that we find where God says, hey, there's gonna be something negative that happens to you if you do this. And that should have been enough to cue Adam and Eve that, hey, we need to perk up and listen to this, number one, because it's, you know, it's from God. <laughs> number two, because God says it pretty emphatically, you will die, die, all right? And, and number three, because it's the only one that God has given, the only command God has given us that actually came with a consequence. But Adam and Eve should have picked up on these things, but unfortunately what we find in this story is a second scene where Adam and Eve find themselves in the presence of a deceiver, 
in the presence of a serpent who is gonna take the words of God and twist it in their minds. And so I want you to see this passage. I want you to look with me at uh, chapter three, beginning in verse one. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, listen to these words, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Pay attention to what just happened. The serpent shows up and in his crafty deceitfulness begins to plant seeds of doubt into the minds of Adam and Eve. He comes in and he says, hey, Eve, is this really what God said? Did, did God say that you couldn't eat of this fruit? Did, did God say that you couldn't eat of the trees? Now, now pay attention to what he says because it, what he starts out with is, is, is literally just a twisting of God's word, but it's gonna get progressively worse. In fact, this first one was fairly easy for Eve to respond to. Right, he comes and he says, didn't God say like you can't eat this fruit? And Eve's like, no, that's not what God said. Like God, God said I can eat of any tree that I want to. I just can't eat of that one, right? And, and she's pretty clear about God's word. She's pretty strong about it. But then the serpent gets a little bit more crafty. Look at verse four. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Well, that is a straight up lie. God had said you will not just die, you will die, die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the, the temptation of the serpent goes from this idea of like, hey, let me just twist God's word to a flat out lie about what God said. And what should have happened in that moment is that Adam and Eve should have been able to respond with God's word saying, no, this is what God said. And we know it because he is God, because he said it emphatically, and because we just, we trust him. But instead, Eve begins to listen to the words of Satan, and she begins to doubt the words of God in her life. Ladies and gentlemen, the schemes of the devil have not changed in thousands of years. We see this exact same pattern. This is nothing new. You've heard this before. We see this same pattern when Jesus comes on the scene in the New Testament. He's baptized by his cousin. He comes up out of the water. The Holy Spirit reveals himself and comes down on Jesus. And there's this beautiful moment. And Jesus, rather than jumping straight into ministry, goes out into the wilderness for 40 days to fast and pray. And while he's there at the tail end of his time when he is in the weakness of his flesh because he's hungry and thirsty and tired, the same serpent shows up. And he pulls out the same exact scheme. Hey, you look a little hungry. Why don't you just turn these rocks over here into some bread? You can do that, right? You're the son of God, right? If you really are who God says you are, you should be able to do that. And what's Jesus' response? Scripture. I'll tell you the truth, this is what scripture says. It says that man shall not live by bread alone. So Satan gets a little more crafty. Oh, well, okay, well, if we're gonna do that, then hey, let's, uh, let's go up on this, this temple and, and man, let's, let's look out over the, the ground here. Man, if you, if you were God, man, if you really are the son of God, you should be able to throw yourself down off of this thing and the angels are gonna swoop down and they're gonna stop you from breaking a bone, right? Like if that's who you really are. And Satan, or Jesus rather, not Satan, <laughs> Jesus responds again with scripture. He knew the words of his father three times. Satan attacks and twists 
and lies about what God had said. And over and over and over again, Jesus' response is, I know what my Father has said about me. We need to be reminded that Satan is no different today than he was 2,000 years ago when he did that to Jesus. And he's no different 2,000 years ago than he was the day he did it to Adam and Eve. His tactics are the same. He will creep into your life and he will plant seeds of doubt by making you ask the question, did God really say it that way? Is that really what God meant by that? Surely not. Maybe God is just holding out on you. Maybe God just doesn't want you to become like him, right? That's the game he played with Adam and Eve was, hey, I think God knows that if you eat of this fruit, you're gonna become like him. Uh, you're gonna be a God. And God, and, and Jesus doesn't, or God the Father doesn't want that, and so he's holding out on you. Don't we feel that sometimes? We walk through seasons of life where we go, God's holding out on me. I know, he, I know he wants to bless me. I know he could do these things, but he's not showing up. And so the devil creeps in and he begins to whisper things in our ear like, hey, man, maybe God doesn't really like you that much. Maybe because you're walking through this season, maybe God doesn't really care for you the way your pastors have taught you and your Sunday school teachers and life group leaders and all these people have told you. And, and even further than that, maybe he doesn't love you as much as his word says he does. We walk through seasons of difficulty in our families and our job situations and the devil is right there waiting. Hey, let me plant the seed of doubt in your life. Can you really trust God? Is he who he says he is? Will he do what he said he's gonna do? There is this deceit. But we need to understand that God created a way to life for Adam and Eve, and he gave them clear instructions through his creation. He gave a command, don't eat, or you will surely die, die. And yet Eve hears these words, look with me at verse six of chapter three. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who, by the way, wasn't off somewhere in a distant part of the garden, unaware of what was happening. He was with her, and he ate too. The fall. See, what we do is a lot like Eve in this moment. We begin to make excuses for why we've given in to this temptation. Satan plants these doubts in our minds and we start to pick up on that and we start to look around and we start to go, ah, you know, he's, he's kind of right. You know, I look at these people who aren't following God and it just seems like they're, they're way more successful than I am. Now, why would God bless those people who aren't even following him but he won't bless me? Huh, how weird. And we begin to, to look around and we begin to go, maybe, maybe I'm missing out on some of the fun that's over there. Man, God keeps putting all these restrictions on me about what I can and can't do, but man, I look over there and I'm like, I don't see anything bad happening to them and it looks like they're having a great time. I'm missing out on the fun. I remember it being a student at North Greenville for all my North Greenville students in the room. I remember, yeah, <laughs> go Zach, all right. I remember being a student at North Greenville and I remember uh, I, I was pretty, 
locked into my faith at that point. I knew I was called to ministry. Like I was, I was pretty like engaged at that point. But I remember looking at some of my friends who just weren't. <laughs> and I remember the, the, the fun that they had. I remember watching some of the things that they did. And I remember going, man, they're getting a real college experience that I'm just not getting. I remember thinking that even as a young man called into ministry, solid in my faith, believing that Jesus had placed this call in my life, I remember looking at people and going, man, they they look like they're having a whole lot of fun that I'm kind of missing out on. But we do that as adults too. We make excuses. We begin to look around. We begin to see the things. We take our eyes off of God. We take our eyes off of the truth of his word, and we begin to look around, and we begin to go, hey, maybe God did lie to me. Maybe this just isn't true. And the moment we do that, we fall. The moment we take our eyes off of the truth of God's word, we tank every time. We see this in the New Testament too. We, we watch the story, one of my favorite stories. We've talked about it before, but we, we see the story of Peter in the boat and Jesus is walking on water towards him and Peter says, hey, Jesus, if that's you, call me and I'm, I'm gonna come to you and I wanna be a part of this miracle that you're doing. And, and Jesus says, all right, come on. And so Peter hops the banister and he gets out on the water and he begins to take a few steps and he's walking on water. It's incredible. But then we get this phrase in there that says, he took his eyes off Jesus, he saw the wind and the waves, and immediately Peter did what? Sank. He fell. When we take our eyes off God's truth, when we take our our eyes off the word of God, we will fall every time, guaranteed, mark it down. We've got to be a people who are devoted to God's truth. We've got to be a people who say, this is what I'm going to stand on. And it doesn't matter what Satan feeds me. It doesn't matter what Satan dangles in front of me and says, hey, I think this might be better for you. It doesn't matter what we feel in certain moments with our emotions that are uh, are just rampantly play tricks on us, right? It doesn't matter what we feel or what we think. It matters what we know. We know God's truth and we've got to follow it. But Adam and Eve, they fall victim to this. And again, I've preached on this passage before with y'all, and I just want to reiterate, a lot of times we blame Eve for this fall, but I love the fact that the ESV especially translates this and says, uh, Adam, her her husband, who was with her. We really see that the, the ultimate sin that came in, this first sin that came into the world, really wasn't Eve taking of the fruit In my opinion, it was that Adam sat by and idly allowed his wife to do something that he knew wasn't right. And we do that still to this day, don't we? We idly sit by. There was some truth, however, to what Satan had said. He did tell them that, hey, your eyes will be opened and you'll know good from evil. And he did tell them that because of that, they're going to they're gonna become like God in some ways, and it's not, uh, not completely a lie. Verse 7 says that, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The idea here of Adam and Eve's eyes being opened was this idea that they took of this fruit, and for the first time in their lives, they began to see things differently. They began to notice the gap. And they look at themselves and they go, 
we've got shame. We've got this stuff on us. We've done some things that we know aren't right, and that shame is driving us. And so where we used to be confident to stand uncovered amongst each other, where we used to be confident to stand there and say, hey, here I am, and I am perfect and holy, and God loves me, and this is right. Now, all of a sudden, Adam and Eve look down at themselves, and they go, no, I I feel the need to hide and to cover, which we do all the time. We sin and that shame creeps in and it's not just the initial lie of Satan but it's the following up lies of Satan that sometimes we buy into. Satan has planted this in Adam and Eve's mind. Their eyes are open and now all of a sudden because of this lie that they've believed, now all of a sudden they are unworthy of God's presence. We feel that way. So we're gonna talk about the gospel here in a second but for Adam and Eve this actually wasn't a lie. This was truth for them. They were unworthy of being in God's presence in this moment. They had sinned. They had fallen. They they were not righteous at this point. And so God comes looking for them. We could keep reading. Look with me at verse 8. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, it was the serpent that deceived me and I ate. We see this picture of God coming into the garden and and he's expecting the same relationship he's had with Adam and Eve this whole time. But when he comes into the garden, Adam and Eve are hidden somewhere. And as I was studying this this week and listening to sermons, I loved what one pastor had to say about this. He said, "There, there were these moments where God still gave an opportunity for grace, even inside of this, before the blood of Jesus, before a sacrifice, before anything, God gave Adam and Eve an opportunity to repent right then and there. Hey, what have you done? Well, it wasn't me, God. It was that wife that you gave me. And so God goes to Eve, and he even gives her a chance to repent. You see, God's grace is just written all through this story. He comes to Eve, and he says, hey, Eve, here's your chance. What'd you do? And Eve goes, it was the serpent. Over and over again, we see the the buck get passed. We see this blame game that begins to happen. We see the same thing in the New Testament. Again, Satan's uh, Satan's impact is no different. We get to the New Testament, and we see stories where this same thing begins to happen, Uh, where where we get people who just blame other people, and they they pass the buck. They, They point the finger. It's not my fault that this happened. God, it's this person over there. It's not my fault, God, that this went this way. In fact, we don't even have to go to the New Testament. We can still even look at the Old Testament in this thing. We can look at some stories that happen moving forward in the following chapters where people begin to pass the buck and they begin to blame other people around them. God gives them opportunity after, after, after opportunity. Next week, we're going to be talking, I think it's next week, is Cain and Abel. And what we see in this moment when we look at this story, if you study it, I would challenge you, read this story before you come in next week. But what you'll see in the story is God shows up to Cain multiple times and gives him an opportunity to confess to killing his brother. He gives him a chance. Hey, Cain, where's your brother? Do you think God doesn't know where Cain or where Abel is? God knows exactly where Abel is. 
He's not asking that question because he doesn't know. He's asking that question because he's trying to give Cain an opportunity to confess in this moment and receive some grace. But Cain can't see that. He can't see the grace of God. And so he looks at God and he says, am I my brother's keeper? There's some bold people in the Old Testament, by the way. I don't think I'd ever say anything like that to God. God, am I my brother's keeper? Yeah, Cain, you are. Where's your brother at? Oh, that's right. You know exactly where he is. You know exactly where he is because his blood is crying out to me from the ground. You killed him. But he doesn't stop there. He still gives Cain another opportunity. He says, "Hey, Cain, like, let's let's just say, let's just move past this. Like, if you'll just go fix the sacrifice that you gave me. In fact, before Cain even kills Abel, God gives him an opportunity. He's like, "Hey, if you'll just fix the sacrifice and make that right, like, we'll move on." And Cain won't do it. And instead of fixing the sacrifice, he goes and kills his brother over it. But even then, God still comes to Cain and still offers more grace because uh, God kicks Cain out of the family and he's like, hey, you're going to have to go be a wanderer. My protection's not with you. You're just going to have to go. <laughs> and Cain is like, God, don't do that to me because if you send me out, if people find out about what I've done, they're going to come after me and they're going to try to kill me. And what does God do? God seals Cain's life and he says, hey, I'm gonna mark you in such a way that when people, know, where they, when people find you, they're gonna know who you are and they won't touch you. Do you see God's grace even in that moment? God's like, Cain, you messed all this up and I gave you opportunity after opportunity to fix these things and you just kept making it worse. But instead of just destroying you, I'm gonna continue to protect you. I'm gonna to continue to provide for you. See, one of the lies that we believe about what's happened in the fall, one of the lies we believe about our personal lives when we fall is that God doesn't love me anymore and he's not for me anymore and I can't show my face in his presence anymore. So we start backing out of things like Sunday school classes and life groups. We stop attending Sunday morning worship services. We stop calling people and praying for people. We stop reading our Bibles and praying. And that's not a quick thing. That's a slow fade that begins to happen in our lives. But it's because we've bought the lie at this point that, man, God doesn't love me and he's not for me and he's not gonna give me grace this time. That's a lie. God continued to offer Adam and Eve grace even in this moment. He says, hey, if you'll just confess, just tell me what you did. They can't do it. And so we get the third and final scene. We have the creation, the command. Now we get the third scene, the consequence. Look with me at verse 14. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing and pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow or the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We get three disciplinary moments here. 
where God says, I told you what would happen. You would surely die, die. Now here it is. Serpent, because of your deceitfulness, because of what you've done, you're going to crawl on your belly. You're going to eat the dust of the earth. And eventually, your head is going to be crushed. You may do some bruising of a heel, but eventually, you're going to be extinguished. This is a passage, this verse 18, I believe that is, if I remember right. Uh, verse 15, chapter 3, verse 15 is a verse we call the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. We're already starting to see God's grace and God's glory. And the gap is getting bigger. Then he goes to the woman and he says, I'm going to surely multiply your pain and childbearing and pain you'll bring forth children. And oh, by the way, you're going to have this desire for your husband and uh, it's going to be, uh, your desire will be contrary to him. You're going to kind of work against him, but he's going to rule over you. And oh, by the way, it's not just childbearing and trouble in the home, but now it's, hey, Adam, by the way, this, this work that you used to love, this purpose that I gave you in this world, it's going to get distorted too because you've eaten of this tree of which I commanded you. You shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. Can you imagine the weight of that for Adam? Because here's the deal. It's not just that it was cursed is the ground and Adam's going to have to go work in the garden. It's cursed is all of the ground, <laughs> the whole earth. So catch this, it's not just a gap between Adam and his purpose in this world, but it is now a curse that affects the entirety of the planet Earth at this point. And the purpose that we had with God has been twisted, and what used to be something that we found pleasure in now becomes something that we find extreme difficulty in, and it's all Adam's fault. Can you imagine the weight of that? It's not the hope over here looking up to me and going, well, that's a pretty small gap. That's okay. That's all right, God. Like, yeah, okay. Pain and childbearing, okay. No, no, it's the gap between hope and David. It's, it's Adam standing here and going, God, you have literally cursed the whole world because of me. See, we got to understand the implications of our sin. It is so much more than just, oh, I messed up, but I'm not as bad as the person next to me. Or, or man, I'm not, I'm not that bad compared to that guy. I, I could kind of catch up. I could do some good things. I could get some good karma in my life and, and make that still work. No, no, no. Man, you, the world is cursed because of our sin. All of God's creation, everything from Genesis 1 is now destroyed because of what you and I, Adam and Eve, have done in our lives. We live not just as fallen people, but we live in a fallen world. Cursed is the ground because of you, and thorns and thistles are going to come up, and this purpose and this job that I've given you is now going to be something that you have to push through and make work, and it's going to be difficult all the days of your life. And if that weren't bad enough, the consequences aren't done yet. Look with me at verse 20. So the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Do you still see the grace of God even in that? I'm still dealing out consequences. But even in the midst of your own sin, I'm going to cover you. Verse 22, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us. And knowing good and evil. So here's the last bit of the consequences. 
Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him... Um, I skipped something. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Verse 24, the kind of the ultimate part of this consequence. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so here was God's command at the beginning of the story. Two trees. One that gives you eternal life and one that gives you a choice. If you take of this choice and you do wrong, you're disobedient, then your access to the tree of life is gonna be cut off. You will surely die, die. God kept his word. He's a just and righteous God. He comes to Adam and Eve and he says, I'm gonna give you a chance to repent. I'm even gonna cover you. I'm gonna take your nakedness and I'm gonna, I'm gonna patch that up a little bit for you. But the consequence is still there. Your access to eternal life, done. And so he sends them out of the garden and he places an angel at the entrance of the garden, guarding the way, not allowing anyone access to the tree of life. And it will remain this way until Revelation 22. Flip with me to Revelation 22. The last chapter of the book of Revelation, verse one. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, listen to this, on either side of that river, the what? The tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Do you understand what just happened? God gave them access back to the tree of life. God gave me and you access back to the tree of life. See, this gap between us, this gap between our, uh, our righteousness or unrighteousness and God's glory was too big for us to bridge on our own. And so God kicks us out of the garden and says, good luck. But what we'll find in the rest of the story as we watch this thing play out, we're gonna see for a couple more weeks the effects of the fall and how it just permeates the whole world. But, but then we're gonna see after the effects of the fall that God comes and he begins a redemptive work through a family, through a man named Abraham, and he begins to redeem that family. He calls them his own and he loves them and he lays his life down for them and he, he calls them to sacrifices and he, he teaches them what it looks, to cover, what it looks like to, to cover their sin with the blood of a lamb. Then we get to the New Testament and we find a new lamb that comes on the scene, this guy named Jesus Christ who comes in and in John's own words, when he sees his cousin coming on the day of Jesus' baptism, he says, hey, here comes the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here comes this lamb that is meant to redeem and restore everything that was lost, not just us and our little piddly sins here and there, but the, to redeem the whole world that has been cursed. 
And through the blood of that lamb, we get to the book of Revelation, and we find that that lamb is no longer on earth in the form of Jesus, but he has returned to the throne room of God. He is seated at the right hand of the Father at the throne, and out of the throne comes this river of life, and planted on either side of this river of life are the trees of life, and we get to eat from that fruit for all of eternity, for the rest of our lives, because God redeemed it all. We got to understand, man, we got to know that what we messed up in the garden, man, we didn't just take a little bit of something, we destroyed it all. But the glory of God was that from the very beginning of that, from the moment we allowed ourselves to take of the fruit, God had a plan and a way to redeem and restore every bit of it. And so where you and I lost access to the tree of life, we can't go to that tree anymore. We can't just walk up in the Garden of Eden and go, well, I need a few more years. Let me go get the pomegranate. We can't do that. But through the blood of a lamb, through the blood of Jesus Christ, we find access. Not on this side of earth, but as we pass through death into eternal life, all of a sudden we find ourselves in the presence of that lamb. We find ourselves in the presence of his glory and we find that he has made a way for you and I to experience what Adam and Eve lost in the garden. I need you to get a perspective this morning. I need you to understand how far we fell and how far God came to get us. Because that changes everything. If I'm just a little bad, God's just a little God. But if I understand that I am evil, <laughs> I have fallen, I have nothing good in me. New Testament says there is none righteous, no, not one. I ain't one of them. If I can get that, and I can bring that to the blood of the lamb, if I can bring that to Jesus and say, I, I'm not worthy, I can't do this, but I understand that you came and you made a way for me, then, then all of a sudden we get access to things that we lost in the garden. And our response to that is praise. Our response to that is to look to the heavenly father and go, you are amazing. How wonderful you are that you didn't leave me to die in the garden, but you came. So I wonder, will you praise God today? I wonder, will you look to your life and see the gap and go, man, God deserves so much more glory than I've given him. God deserves so much more than me standing in my pew idly, but God deserves me to, to lay my life down for him. God deserves me to sing these songs with all that I've got. God deserves for me to go out of this building and proclaim his name to everyone around me because he is good. I wonder what your response will be. I wanna pray for you. Our praise team's gonna come and lead us in one last song I would just ask you that as we sing this song that you would give God the glory that's due his name. Understand the gap. Understand what God did to close it. And let's praise him for it. Let's pray to God. Father God, we thank you for the tree of life. We thank you for the fruit that it yields. But God, we know our access to that tree was cut off because of what we did. We know that our access to that tree, Father, is, uh, was destroyed 
just three chapters in. But God, we also thank you that even though that gap got bigger and bigger, (laughs) even though the gap between your glory and our unrighteousness, Father, is insurmountable, unfathomable, God, we praise you that you made a way through the blood of a lamb so that we could have access to the very thing that we lost. You're a good, good father. That's who you are. And I'm loved by you. That's who I am. I praise you for that, God. This morning, God, I just pray that this room would be filled with your praises. I pray that we would sing to the top of our lungs, God. Not because it's a song we like or don't like, but that we would proclaim it because it's truth about your name. I pray that we would shout your name from the rooftops this week. That we would declare your goodness and your glory to people around us. That we would help them see the gap. That we would help them understand your glory. And that, God, we would see our need for a Savior. That we would lead these people to the foot of the cross and say, here, at the blood of the Lamb, here at the foot of this place, this this place of death and destruction, here at the foot of this place where the, the life of Jesus was taken, here is where you will find life, and the guarantee of that is an empty tomb. It, it, it is a place of fulfilled promises. God, give us the courage and boldness to lead people into those conversations that we wouldn't sit idly by like Adam and watch as those around us sin. But God, that we would take some initiative, that we would get bold in the name of Jesus, that we would remember your word and how it's been taught to us and that we would go and we would proclaim it to people who who are still living a life of sin, that we would go to them and say, hey, you gotta stop, you gotta go to Jesus. That we would quit being passive in our faith. God, I pray that you would direct us to that. And that through all this, God, you'd get all the glory, honor, and praise that's due your name. Because you're at the center of the story, God. We love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.